Today, the National Welfare Rights Organization launches the grassroots phase of Operation Nevada. NWRO has brought in recipient leaders, lawyers, law students, and friends of welfare rights from across the country to counterattack the repression that the state of Nevada has done against welfare recipients here. We intend to demonstrate Nevada that when they attempt to cut welfare grants and cut people off, that more people are going to be put on welfare because we know there are more people out there who need it. We intend to demonstrate to the rest of the country that repression against poor people will be met head on, will be turned around, and will be turned into a victory for poor people. We intend in this campaign to use the courts, to use negotiations, to use the political processes, but if that fails, make no mistake that we will be in the streets and we will be in the streets demonstrating at the welfare centers, at the gambling casinos, in the hotels. We will have marches down the strip if necessary. We will conduct this campaign until every person illegally denied welfare is restored. That was Syracuse chemistry professor turned civil rights activist George Wiley speaking to an assembled group of African-American women activists and their supporters in the spring of 1971. In January of that year, the state of Nevada, following an experiment launched by California Governor Ronald Reagan, had slashed welfare benefits, catapulting single mothers and their families from poverty to near starvation. Women who were minimum wage workers in the Las Vegas hospitality, entertainment, and gambling industry, even then a multi-billion dollar business, watched their children go hungry. But Nevada hadn't reckoned with what these women knew how to do. Migrants from the Jim Crow South, they had faced down tougher bosses and crueler state officials. More importantly, although Las Vegas was a racist city, it was also a union town, and as union members, these mothers not only knew they had rights, but they had experience fighting for them. More importantly, by 1971, there was a social movement for women supplementing their earnings with or living on welfare. In 1964, Wiley and Los Angeles mother Johnny Tillman had launched a national organization that linked together autonomous chapters of poor mothers to fight for the benefits that had been promised to them by federal law. It was called the National Welfare Rights Organization. In 1967, that movement reached Las Vegas. Rosie Seals and Alversa Beals, using the organizing techniques they had learned in a lifetime of agricultural labor and service work, their wisdom as mothers, and their determination to make life better, started the Clark County Welfare Rights Organization. So when Nevada withdrew those welfare benefits, the women of Clark County knew what to do. As one national organizer had explained to Ruby Duncan, the only way to fight back was to hit them in the pocketbook. Duncan, now president of the Clark County Welfare Rights Organization, contacted Tillman and Wiley for help. And with Maya Miller of the National League of Women Voters, the group planned Operation Nevada, a massive series of demonstrations designed to bring Las Vegas's famous strip, its gambling, entertainment, leisure hotels, and all-night free buffets to a screaming halt. Because that strip 
as Duncan explained to historian Annalise Orlick two decades later, was the pocketbook. It was, she said, the main vein. Orlick told the story of these women, a few of the thousands of women organized in hundreds of welfare rights chapters across the country, in her 2006 book, Storming Caesar's Palace, How Black Mothers Fought Their Own War on Poverty. The book is now a PBS documentary directed by Hazel Gerland Pooler, released in March 2023, and that is reason enough to return to it. But there are other reasons. It's a part of the African-American civil rights movement that many people don't know, perhaps because it was run and the battles were fought by black women who saw their activism as an extension of their commitment as mothers. Or maybe we don't know their story because it's not the story of oppression and dependency that the enemies of government programs like to tell. The Clark County Welfare Rights Organization called their project Operation Life, and they literally brought their community to life with cultural programs, health care, child care, and job training that they devised, built, and ran themselves. Yes, the women of Clark County fought for their right to receive welfare and to not be shamed by it. But they also used their organizing and fundraising skills to create the institutions their community needed to thrive. They lifted themselves out of poverty. We should also revisit this chapter because the attacks on welfare and the women who need it have never ceased. And whenever Republicans take power, as they have in the House of Representatives and in legislatures across the country, they always try to cut aid for the poor. So join Annalise Orlick and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research, co-executive editor of Public Seminar, and the author of The Political Junkie Substack. This is episode 22, Hit Them in the Pocketbook. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Claire. Your book, Storming Caesar's Palace, came out, what, about 10 years ago? Longer than that. The original edition was 2005. It's been reissued to be timed with the new PBS documentary that is based on the book. Is that correct? That is right. That aired on uh, March 20th. What is Storming Caesar's Palace about? Storming Caesar's Palace is the story of a group of poor Black mothers migrants from the Mississippi Delta, from Louisiana, from Mississippi, from Arkansas, who moved to Las Vegas in the 1950s to work in the back of the hotels, work as hotel housekeepers and kitchen help, and who ended up through various reasons, overwork, abuse, injury, lack of medical care on public assistance. And in uh, 1971, the state cut everybody off, just decided to do an experiment, infatuated with California Governor Ronald Reagan's idea of no more pay for play and shrinking the welfare rules. So Nevada thought, we're a small enough state, we have a small enough population, let's try it here. 
Well, these women were were sharp, and they had uh, begun organizing the National Welfare Rights Movement a couple of years earlier, and had met the national founders, uh, Los Angeles welfare mom Johnny Tillman, New York welfare mom Beulah Sanders, and uh, Tillman and Sanders had said, "Poor women have only one." Uh, leverage, one means of leverage, hit them in the pocketbook. So Ruby was driving down the Las Vegas Strip and she said, oh my God, this is the pocketbook. This is the main vein. So uh, they decided that if they weren't reinstated, if their children didn't get their medical and food benefits again, and they didn't get their aid, uh, they were going to shut down the Las Vegas Strip, which had never been done before. And so in March 1971, they did that several times, uh, ended up getting reinstated. Enjoying civil disobedience, they then had Edens in the casinos, which were famous in those days for all-you-can-eat buffets for for a dime, while hundreds were literally starving in the shadow of the Strip. And they took, I think it was 600 kids into the Stardust in February of 72 to order all they could eat and not pay. They also did read-ins at whites-only libraries because Clark County was convinced Black children didn't read, and so there were no brick-and-mortar libraries um, on the Black side of town. And they tended to invade the governor's uh, swim sessions. They went to the backyard of the governor's mansion in Carson City while he was doing his laps and uh, urged him to uh, reinstate their families. So they did all this kind of fun civil disobedience and the 71 March was big. They had people in from all over the country and they had celebrities like Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland and Dr. Spock, the famous baby doctor. And, and they stormed Caesar's palace, you know, the icon of conspicuous consumption and had pictures of their children taken, their arms holding signs that said Nevada starves children over these red velvet and gold leaf craps tables and, you know, in these roulette wheels and these very fancy rooms. Well, the governor said to them, how about, you know, get out of the streets and learn the system? And they did in a remarkable way. And their leader, Ruby Duncan, who was a mother of seven, former hotel kitchen worker, former cotton picker from Tallulah, Louisiana, uh, she turned out to be absolutely brilliant at ferreting out every little government program that was still funded in those days of the war on poverty. Um, and they formed a community development corporation called Operation Life, in Ruby's words, before life got a bad name. They then ran a remarkable anti-poverty agency for uh, over 20 years. First healthcare clinic in their community. Uh, they opened the first library in their community. They job training. They opened job training programs, a women and infant children nutrition program. They solarized houses long before the rest of us were turned on to solar. Uh, they rehabbed the swimming pool, which is no joke in a place where it gets to be 115 in the summers. And they fed children who came to swim in that pool. They gave them free meals. So they did all kinds of things. Their theory was that if you're going to fight poverty, poor mothers can do it and do it better, in their words. And so that's their story in a nutshell. It's a wonderful story. And of course, it stands in contrast to the story that was being told about women on welfare by people like Ronald Reagan, that these were just women who were having babies and lying around and expecting the taxpayers to support them. But the other thing that's really interesting to me about this book, when I reread it, is that it happens really at the end of what we think of as the conventional civil rights movement. Yes. And the welfare rights movement is really standing on the shoulders of Martin Luther King's war on poverty. But unlike 
the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, it's women who are in charge of it. So talk to me a little bit about how did these women manage to become such amazing organizers when many of them had very little education, very little time? How did they do it? Well, I think one of the things that's interesting about welfare, and you you see it also with uh, public housing, is that by having to engage the Byzantine welfare system, and for those who don't know, the American welfare system is a mass of fragments, right? There, is, there are federal mandates, but then there are state systems and county systems and municipal systems. And, you know, in having to appeal for aid um, for their children, if they wanted food, they'd have to go to the Commodities Food Program, which in those days before food stamps gave out uh, army surplus dried milk and peanut butter and cheese and bread. And that was run by the county. In order to apply for aid to families with dependent children, what we think of as welfare, the cash aid, they had to go to, um, it was a federal office, but it was run by the state. And so they'd go to the state office in Las Vegas. One of the things about commodities was that it was so humiliating. The women talk, Ruby talks about standing at the, the bottom of the courthouse steps, the county courthouse steps in Las Vegas when it's, you know, 100 degrees and these city council people and county government officials would go up to the top of the steps and call out the names of each of the families. And it was you know, it was patronage, but it was, it was really humiliating. And all Ruby wanted, all these women wanted, she said, was the ability that all mothers had to choose what foods they thought were healthy for their children, to shop in a regular store, to buy fresh food, not be so dependent on those dried f- foods. And so to do that, they had to go to the feds. They learned there was something called food stamps, but the state hadn't allowed it in, and many states hadn't. And the way food stamps became a federal program is that welfare mothers in 17 states sued to get the money released and get the program uh, into their states. And these women were so smart. You know, they saw when they and they had to go lobby the state legislature. So then they learned the state government to try to get them to accept food stamps, which they did not want to do. Um, And so they had a brilliant idea. They said, let's go to the supermarket chains and let's speak to their lobbyists and say, could you think about how much more money you'd make if, you know, food stamps of millions and millions were put in the hands of poor women to go buy their children food? And so that's exactly what they did. And the women laughed. They said, you know, you should have seen the concern on the faces of the legislators when suddenly, you know, Safeway and Albertsons and Kroger lobbyists were making the play. So they were just really sharp. Ruby had an innate genius, as I said, for ferreting out programs. She was a brilliant speaker. She still is. She's the last of them still alive at 91 and still sharp. But, you know, they also really wanted to run these programs themselves. They wanted to get off welfare, you know, in the in the words of Reagan and later Bill Clinton. You know, they they wanted to do it, though, by doing meaningful work. They wanted to run these programs and provide services to their community. So Alversa Beals, also from Louisiana, Delta, ran their clinic and their offices for 20 years. She had a sixth grade education. She never was able to stay in school after elementary school because she had to pick cotton and she was so poor. She designed her own system. She said, look, you know, we learn arithmetic in elementary school. That was enough. And when the feds audited her, amazingly, they audited the WIC clinic and it was accurate down to four cents. There were four cents unaccounted for because she had developed this system. The one other story I'll tell is when... Uh, they started their pediatric clinic. They got uh, money from the feds under a program called Early Periodic Screening and Diagnostic Testing. And it was a program 
that was intended to reach poor children who never got to go to doctors. And they did. And so what these women did was they knew that nobody had a, a way of getting anywhere. Mass transit in Vegas was terrible. Very few people had cars. One of the women had a station wagon. She had a lot of kids. And so they piled into her station wagon every day and they would go out over the county and go into poor women's houses. And, you know, they talked about how being poor is really depressing, especially when you're a mom and you can't give your kids what they need. So they'd go in, dress the kids, you know, get the mothers, you know, a cup of coffee. Let's go. We're having them screened. And they screened a higher percentage of eligible children than any federally funded pediatric clinic in the country. So then HEW, Health Education and Welfare Secretary, Casper Weinberger, later Ronald Reagan's defense secretary, called them to Washington to honor them. And he said, this is amazing. How can you have these kind of stats? How can you screen that many children, that higher percentage? And the women said, it's simple. We, we care about them. They're like our children. And they really believed that that was the difference between professionals who were distanced from poor communities running these programs and, and poor people themselves, especially poor moms running them. And let's, let's roll back a little bit and talk about how these wonderful women ended up in Las Vegas in the first place. Because to remind our listeners again, this book starts in 1971. So the 60s, as we think about it, normally our focus is on the Jim Crow South, on mass resistance to integration. Sometimes our focus is on cities in the North where uh, there's another form of Jim Crow being instituted. But we really don't think that much about the West. So how is it in the 1960s that these women leave the South and go to Las Vegas? It's a chain migration to Vegas like any place else. And these were the last sharecroppers, right? So, you know, after World War II and in the 50s when, you know, rock and roll was beginning and, and the civil rights movement was happening and Vegas was beginning its rise to glitzy glam with the Rat Pack and, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. and Frank Sinatra, etc. These women were still picking cotton. Where they lived in Tallulah, Louisiana, Sanhammer, Louisiana, Fordyce, Arkansas, Greenville, Mississippi, and parts of Texas south of Dallas, their lives were not so different from their enslaved great grandmothers. They really, they really couldn't tell the difference. But you know, it was the fifties, and they were getting you know radio broadcasts at least sometimes from people, and you know, BB King would come to town sometimes and they would all find a way to get to town to see him play. And he and Ruby would remain close for the rest of his life. They did know that there was something else out there. So the chain migration began actually in the New Deal. And the book looks at the New Deal. One, the Social Security Act was passed in 1935 with its Title IV guarantee of a minimum income for the very, very poorest families and the blind and permanently disabled. And so I wanted to trace that story to 1996 when that act was, when Title IV was repealed, right? And now we, there is no guarantee of aid um, as a right of citizenship. And, but to do it through the eyes of women who were poor and receiving aid that whole time. And so that's what I did. And I start out with them in the 30s when they're born. There were few men in that community who came out to build Boulder Dam. I was federal. It was a WPA, Works Progress Administration project under Roosevelt's New Deal. And they would hire black men, right? So it was very, very dangerous work, but it paid many times what it would pay them to work in the cotton field. So they went first. 
And, you know, always with migration, migrations, right? You write home and you say, oh, it's so great here. It's incredible. And come on out. And so as the strip, the strip grew almost in real time from 1947 to the early 60s. You know, one famous hotel after another, the Flamingo, the Sands, the Desert Inn, the Stardust. And so there were a lot of jobs. And because the hotels tended to be run by uh, East Coast mobsters, they thought about an East Coast labor force rather than thinking about who their labor force of the West might be. And so they literally hired one of the first black women business agents in the unions, uh, Sarah Hughes, and said, you know, go back to the cotton fields and tell people you can earn as much in a day um, as you can earn in a week here in the shade. You don't have to work outside. So that's what happened. And, you know, these women started going out West and uh, it was still segregated. It was Las Vegas was known as the Mississippi of the West. Um, It was a Jim Crow town. And they could work on the strip, but they couldn't live there. They couldn't walk in the front doors. They couldn't drink out of the water fountains. Um, They lived on the west side. And the housing was so substandard that uh, Mary Wesley, probably the the second in command in this group, who came from Mississippi to avoid getting killed because she was too mouthy, as as, uh, her mother said. She was worried about her, so she sent her out to Vegas. She said she thought it was a bunch of, of chicken coops. She wanted to know where the people lived. Um, You know, these were cardboard shacks with chicken wire sometimes and paper on the top. They would wet the paper and make like paper mache over the chicken wire and often had rugs or blankets for doors to keep the dust out. That's what they found. And so they kind of knew right away there'd be a battle for their rights. And the first battle, interestingly, before the welfare rights movement was they joined the Culinary Workers Union because it was a union town, still is. And for example, Ruby found one night they demanded that she work a second shift. Uh, she was working in the kitchen in the sands. And and she said, I got seven kids at home. I can't do that, right? I got to be home and take care of them. So they fired her. So she went to the business agent, Sarah used. Sarah argued her case. She had a union contract. She was reinstated. And Ruby went to her supervisor after that, who, as she said, was a white woman from Florida who was also new to Vegas and didn't know how things worked there. She said, slavery's over. It's a new world. And so the union was number one, right? So that's when they first started organizing. And so, you know, when the welfare rights movement hit them in Vegas, they'd already been involved in trying to desegregate the strip and in marches and and in union organizing. And so as one, as Alvaro Sabil said, it was the first time I heard the words welfare and rights in one sentence. But when she told me it was mothers organizing and they were organizing for kids, uh, she thought, all right, that's that's my job. So I'm going to do that. And and they founded a, a welfare rights chapter there in 67, three or four years before they were cut off the rolls, but they were already mobilized. Part of what's interesting about the welfare rights movement, it's started by George Wiley and Richard Cloward and Francis Fox Piven, among other people. And it's founded on the basic principle that the United States has passed these laws There are actual standards for welfare. It's written in the statutes what people are owed. And yet there were all of these middle managers and state bureaucrats and so on who weren't giving them what they were entitled to. And when we think about the word entitlement, it's always so pejorative. But in fact, you are entitled to certain kinds of things under the law. 
And of course, we've seen this, uh, you know, Mississippi currently has a big scandal because all kinds of welfare dollars have apparently been spent on sports facilities and put in the pockets of various friends of the governor and they're litigating that. But these mothers are going to say, look, it says in this piece of paper that every child gets a winter coat. I want a winter coat for my child. So, so the organizing is about what's getting what they're owed. And yet this is a huge step for people who have been subject to such terrible violence as many of these women were in the South. And I wonder if any of the women talked about the kind of courage it took to take their activism to this level. Well, I think the violence they experienced in the South uh, made them feel like as frightening as the mob was or the state um, of Nevada was, it was really nothing compared to what they had been through. Mary Wesley's father had been murdered by the Klan. You know, Ruby Duncan had grown up hiding as Night Riders came and burned her uncle's fields because he'd founded an NAACP chapter. Essie Henderson, at 12, picking cotton in Texas, had dared to complain when the overseer at the end, and I use the word overseer intentionally, uh, short-weighted her at the end. She sh- he short-weighted her and said, "You didn't. this is how much you, you gave me. And she said, no, I know how much it weighs. I weighed it on my own scale. And as a result of that, the the overseer picked her up and, and was going to beat her. And Essie's parents came to complain. And Essie's father ultimately had to leave town because they were going to kill him for sticking up for his 12-year-old. And Essie's mother, before the horrific murder of James Byrd in the same county in the 90s, in the same way, was tied by her feet to the back of a pickup truck and then dragged in the dirt with her head hitting on the dirt. She lived. This is the kind of violence they had all seen. And so honestly, it took courage. But you know, as mothers who were so upset that their children didn't have shoes uh, to start the school year and that they'd be made fun of and that they were so hungry they couldn't concentrate and that the level of malnutrition as a result of the Nevada cuts was so high that nurses in the National Public Health Program or who were coming in to, to look at them found that they had rickets. Now, rickets, which is you know, soft bones and open sores from lack of access to fresh food and vitamin C is a long-term malnutrition problem. You don't get rickets because, you know, you didn't have oranges for the winter. So, you know, the combination of what they had been through and what they saw in, in what their children were going through in Las Vegas made them feel like, I got to do this. And when Ruby first went to lobby, when she learned who the senator was who was in charge of the Senate Ways and Means Committee that determined uh, benefit levels and which of those federal entitlements, like coats or shoes or telephones, they could get, she said she just went up to him and said, if it wasn't for you, I could have shoes for my children. It was revelatory. And I think the candor and the emotion behind that way of speaking moved legislators and moved the press and moved a lot of people watching their struggles so that when they closed down the strip in 1971, people came from all over the country to support them. So yeah, but I do think the violence of the South made organizing, uh, even in mobbed up Las Vegas, feel not so scary. Although I did learn later that the mob held a meeting about whether to kill Ruby Duncan after all these marches and protests because money had been lost and some mob boss had to say, no, she 
cares for children. That's all she's doing is trying to feed hungry children. So we're not doing it. You know, there was a chance of real violence and her children talk about one time seeing someone spreading uh, gasoline outside the house and they were afraid they're about to set the house on fire and chasing that person away. And the phones were tapped and they didn't know who did it. So it's not that there was nothing to be afraid of, but quite honestly, I think given what they'd come from, they were in for the whole ride. Part of what's so interesting about this is the sort of standard story about the victories of the civil rights movement, a series of bills that were passed under the Johnson administration that are actually creating these programs. And, you know, you sort of look at that history and say, oh, so this is the history of helping the poor. But there's actually at least as vivid a history of making sure that the poor stay poor, which is, of course, what Richard Cloward and Francis Fox Piven wrote about, that you need this reserve army of poor people. But in Las Vegas, they have a particular way of creating that reserve army, right? Because they wanted to be able to lay people off in the off season when people weren't coming to Las Vegas. And so they would put people on welfare in order to actually keep people there. They would help them get on welfare. So talk about that a little bit, because that that resonates today with Walmart helping people get on food stamps. You know, as Ruby liked to say, you know, they talk about what a cushy lifestyle welfare. She said, it's, it's, it's a really cushy lifestyle if you're dead. It provides almost nothing that you needed. The only thing that it's better than is what we have now, which is next to nothing. And so it is absolutely true that the casino industry pioneered this model that Walmart now uses, that McDonald's now uses, which is using taxpayer money to pay their employees during seasons when they didn't want to, to maximize their profits. And so for Walmart and McDonald's now, you know, they want to be able to hire people on demand. And so, you know, they're not necessarily paying, they're not paying people enough to live on. And so I think there was a study, I'm not sure, I don't remember the exact numbers, but every Walmart that is built costs taxpayers millions, right, in, annually because of how dependent the, these Walmarts are on, on getting their workers onto public assistance, especially food aid, um, because, you know, unless the House GOP now has its way, food aid is a little less restrictive, you know, in terms of, of how low your income can be to, to get on it. But no, there's no question. Um, I wanted to, to, you know, intervene with one thing you said, which is that Piven, Cloward, and, and Wiley started NWRO. They started the national network, but it's really the women on the ground in every one of those cities who started the local chapters. And and what Piven and Cloward and, and Wiley did is they created a national umbrella and drew everybody together. And they also exercised the clout that, you know, some professors could have in getting the word out that a bunch of welfare mothers did not. But the mothers were were really essential. And, and Johnny Tillman's uh, chapter starts in 63. The New York chapter starts in 66. And so when Wiley and Tillman call everybody together in the summer of 1966, there have already been a, a lot of these local protests. And this idea that Tillman really pioneered and that really influenced the Las Vegas women, that if you want to know what a poor neighborhood needs, asks its, its poor mother. So Tillman did a survey of Nickerson Gardens area area in LA. And, you know, they came up with, you know, the mothers there came up with all these services that the neighborhood most needs and all these jobs that that should be created and given to poor people to build, rebuild their communities. So that vision of how to fight poverty is really from the ground up. And it's really from these poor moms themselves. 
That's really interesting. And mothers really taking control of their own citizenship, of their own families. There's something else that happens to these women too, though, a kind of violence that follows them from the South. And I'm talking specifically of involuntary sterilization. And that's a particularly sad and awful part of the story. How did you get the women to talk to you about what had happened to them at the hands of unscrupulous doctors? Well, the thing is that because the doctors who they saw who worked for the plantations where they grew up would not give them any kind of birth control, because as one of them told Bobby Kennedy's 1966 investigating commission in the South, no Negro woman down here who doesn't have a child every year after she's 12 is, you know, is worth anything to us. They actually wanted to get uh, birth control. And so while for Fannie Lou Hamer and some of the folks who stayed in the, ha- in the South, that involuntary sterilization was the issue around which they organized. For these women, um, Ruby Duncan and Alversa Beals both staged sit-ins um, in their hospital, one in the hospital and one in the doctor's office to get their tubes tied. Um, and in those days, because they didn't want to have any more children, Ruby had had seven, um, Alversa Beals had 11. As she said to me, you know, her mother had another one every year until she was in her 40s. So she said, by then I would have had like 24 children. So they really wanted access to contraception. No one would give it to them because the only hospitals and doctors that would serve the poor in their lives at that time were Catholic hospitals. And so they wouldn't provide any kind of contraception. To get their tubes tied, They in the law was such in those days in the early 60s, late 50s, that they had to get their husband's permission. They could not legally go in there themselves and say that they wanted to stop having babies. So this is indeed a story about reproductive justice, but their story, you know, gives lie to this idea of, oh, those welfare mothers are just having babies, you know, to get more money. They desperately wanted to stop having babies, but they also, being human beings, didn't want the government telling them that they couldn't have a sex life. So give them contraception or tie their tubes. They wanted, you know, they had relationships. They, you know, they liked men. They wanted to continue having sex. So, you know, I think it's a story about many things in in the reproductive justice and the sexual freedom struggle and um, not as much about involuntary sterilization as, of course, so many other women of color who were organizing in that same period. And it, it really sort of can persuade us that violence takes many forms. One form of violence is to take away people's free will, to take away the things that they need to exercise their free will. And it's Annalise, I wanted to sort of push you ahead to the end of the movement. And it ends rather abruptly, really with the election of Ronald Reagan. What happens to this movement? Well, what's really interesting is that most of these community organizations, which were founded in the 60s and 70s with war on poverty dollars from the Johnson, Nixon, and Carter administrations, did fold in 1980. What's remarkable is that Operation Life had been at its peak only two years earlier. By 1978, with federal dollars, especially under the Comprehensive Education and Training Act, which was a Carter administration program, that, like the War on Poverty, allowed local community organizations to say what kinds of jobs they wanted to create for their neighborhood and who they wanted to hire. They had 100 employees. So it was a, you know, a medium-sized uh, corporation at, at that time. And 
they were actually able, because they had gotten so much good press and also started to substitute foundation dollars in some cases for federal dollars. The Ford Foundation was a big funder. The Fleischmann Foundation allowed them to build a new building for their clinic, which they continued to operate through the 80s. And so what's interesting is when I met them on Labor Day of 1992, they had just lost their last federal program only three weeks earlier. So they held on through the Reagan years. They even held on through Bush one. But, you know, slowly but surely, this idea that government programs, you know, were good uh, for problem solving, you know, had really changed. The Reagan revolution did accomplish that, that people started to believe that, that government programs were somehow bad. The other thing was that government funding is a double-edged sword. You know, what the government gives, it can take away. And so, you know, the core of the miracle of what they did, which is that these women with elementary school educations ran this sophisticated program and accomplished so much good. I mean, they treated children uh, who'd never been tested before for sickle cell anemia and, and were able to catch them early enough that they saved lives. They gave dental care to kids who'd never before seen a dentist and would have lost all their teeth. They treated atomic vets, people who'd been exposed. I mean, Vegas was downwind of the nuclear test site and people had started to develop cancers in the 1970s from exposure to radioactive fallout. They did all this amazing stuff and that won them a lot of goodwill, But but the government took it away because how could, I mean, it must be wrong. It must be fraudulent. It must be nepotism for women with elementary and only, you know, the most they had was an 11th grade education to be running these programs. And so one by one, they were forced out, for, forced off the Operation Life Board. And I say this, even though they had some very powerful allies, the future Senate Majority Leader, Nevada Senator Harry Reid was on their board. You know, they had, they had some really powerful people in their corner. But you know, in the end, it wasn't enough to keep them from being forced out. So that was bitter. That was really, that was really bitter. And, and one thing they said happened across the country in similar ways is that genuinely grassroots movements that had applied for and gotten these federal funds in the 60s and 70s and 80s were the money was taken from them and given to more traditionally credentialed social service kind of organizations. So that's what happened. So, you know, the West Side of Vegas does have beautiful performing arts center and library. It has now health clinic. It has senior citizen housing, which actually Operation Life continued to run. It has uh, an, a lot of low income housing. It's got all these solar panels. It has a lot of what the women brought there. And of course, food stamps and women and infant children nutrition program welfare mothers like these, including these and like these brought to the whole country. So their legacy is enormous, but they were pushed out and they were, they were deeply hurt and confused and bitter. And, uh, you know, in Mary Wesley's words, we were smart enough to bring the programs in, but in their eyes, you know, too dumb to run them. That, that felt kind of brutal because the emotional power of you know, in the words of another woman, Roma Jean Hunt, of feeling important, of feeling like we were giving back, of feeling like we mattered to ourselves, to our community, to our kids, to the country. That was really hugely important for people who'd been, you know, the objects of contempt their, their whole lives. So when they lost the programs, they were really, really demoralized. And one of the great things about writing this book is over the next 13 years, when we went back and forth to talk to them, they started to heal in a way because they were then, you know, as older people do, when you do oral history, they were reconstructing what they had done so that by the end, there was a real feeling of, of mutual aid and, and community again. And that was great. That, that was one of the best things about, 
uh, working on the book. And other another thing is that someone who had read the book, a high school kid who was assigned it, decided there has to be a, a Ruby Duncan school in Vegas, and they have built one. And uh, and supposedly they teach the kids, you know, that if you have a problem in your community and your family, you, you organize, you solve it from the ground up. So it's it's a beautiful legacy for Ruby. Why should our listeners read this book now? I think because we've gone back in time in many ways in terms of, of people's conception of who poor people are and what their capacities are and, you know, the language we hear, you know, got to bring back shame and, you know, maybe it would be better if they, you know, had a little more sense of struggle and a very misogynist and anti-single mother kind of, of rhetoric. It's really important to humanize the story. And, you know, in a very particular program issue, today's House GOP majority has vowed to try to zero out the program and to cut it to the bone, which I don't think they will ultimately succeed at because the program was expanded actually most after Lyndon Johnson by George W. Bush during the 2008 crash. And it feeds between one in seven, one in eight adults and one in four children in the country. So it would be hard to get rid of, but they're trying. And Chuck Schumer said to the House leader, McCarthy, let's be clear about this. You are talking about taking food out of hungry children's mouths. And I read that it came through one of my news feeds and I thought, oh my God, this is 50 years ago, right? This is, this is what Ruby Duncan was saying in the legislature. And as you said, many forms of violence. Uh, one thing that Ruby liked to say, quoting Coretta Scott King is violence is a hungry child. Um, so we're facing that. And I think something else um, that I didn't get to mention that I think is also important on violence and, and what we need to talk about is, is that, you know, the Violence Against Women Act has also been cut to the bone and, you know, federal aid to the poor um, has always been tied to women escaping violence situations. It is now more than ever. And I think, you know, understanding these stories and, and you know, giving the idea, the word welfare mama face instead of a caricature. And Annalise, why don't we let Ruby Duncan have the last word? This was what she had to say in 2017. There's too many poor women out there uh, that don't have jobs. And if they have jobs, they are just not good paying jobs. They are, they, matter of fact, they are slave wages, all of those that are working at the moment. But there's so many poor, poor white women, poor Asian women, poor Hispanic women. Now, we know we got our poor black women. We know that. But just when I was working, there were poor whites. And, but they never would come together with us. So we would do the work, but they would reap the benefits, all of them. But that's okay. We loved it. Okay. But now... Women has got to pull themselves together and try their very best to make this a better world or a better country, a better America, or some other sort, because it's, it's sad. There's too many poor families, poor un unemployed men, not only black men, but white men, Asian men, uh, or Hispanic men. Uh, our children are not getting educated like they should be, that I'm so willing to work with anybody or to sit and talk with every, anybody that want to go about doing what they know is right for poor women.
and women as a whole. And that's it for today's show. You can go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes and to listen to more episodes, leave a comment, or ask a question. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, which gets you one newsletter a week that may or may not include a podcast. Or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. You can also participate in subscriber chats. You can subscribe to Why Now on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Please share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. Show notes, technical assistance, and research are by Emma Kern. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. You can find both of these terrific artists on soundstripe.com. That's all for now. I'll see you next time.